I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2019 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series. Today's program, Saving Your Strip-Tilled Soil with Smart, Simple Strategies, is being brought to you by Topcon Agriculture. If this is your first time tuning in, you can subscribe to this series and get updates on future episodes currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you prefer another app for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll look to get it added. Thanks again to Topcon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy matters and Topcon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4-hour nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. While strip tillers often speak of their field's ability to absorb the impact of a hard rain, without seeing precious topsoil or applied nutrients wash away. But just how are the fertilizer savings and reduced soil erosion being measured and managed? Recent research by University of Minnesota Regional Extension Educator Jody DeYoung Hughes is putting numbers behind the benefits of keeping soil and nutrients in the field where they belong. As Jody says, farmers can lose the equivalent of $55 of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium into the ditch. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by Topcon Agriculture, Jody details her recent research on quantifying the value of conservation tillage techniques as erosion-reducing tactics, including crop selection and tillage depths. So I'm out of Minnesota, West Central, and I work a lot with the Eastern Dakota people too. And we have a lot of tillage fields out there and we've been doing this for quite a while. So we're gonna kind of talk about what we've seen over the years. Now, why do we till? It's this guy's fault, by the way. It's not the band. It's the actual uh, scientist named Jethro Tull. And what he believed is that um, (laughs) a plant, you know, sometimes they thought, well, okay, maybe it takes up salts and maybe it does this. How does that plant actually grow? So in the 1600s, Jethro Tull made an announcement and he was big in the scientific community. So it took off that the plant actually sucked up soil into the roots. So you had to make it really fine and, and, and tiny so that it could get into the roots so that that plant can grow. And that way, um, when, you, when you tilled, the first three, two or three plowings that you did was just getting the field ready. And then you had to go in, he was also the creator, the cultivator. You go in there with the cultivator and you do that every week until your canopy closes and you can't get in there anymore. And that's why the crop quit growing at canopy closure is because you weren't making it really nice and fine so the roots could suck it up. And it's like, wow, you're, oh. That's, you know, people say, well, how did all this tillage start? Darn English people. So, but, you know, there's a lot of factors out of our control. So I, I, we have a lot of research that shows that any type of tillage system can work and some work better, but no matter what I give you, I'm not sitting in your shoes where, do you have kids that are gonna take over farming? The average age of a farmer is 56. So do you want to plan a whole new uh, tillage system? A whole, and, and it's a system, it's not, hey, I'm just gonna change out this one piece of equipment. And you know, if you don't have kids that are doing this, 
and you're around 60, you know, maybe not. Uh, the markets, when the price of corn went up, wow, the moldboard plows were being sold. Uh, they were having a great time because people were doing corn on corn. They couldn't deal with all the, the re residue out there. Get the plow, bury it. So there's a lot of things that I don't deal with. So I know that my research is just a piece of what you guys have to deal with. But there is something you can control, and that's how aggressively and how often you till that field. How deep you till it, how many passes you make. But why should we even worry about excessive tillage? Now, for those of you maybe who um, aren't in Minnesota, this is called moldboard plow. <laughs> uh, I have people go, why do you keep talking about the plow? We don't use the plow. Oh, we do. We do a lot. So I try to, um, it's kind of the most extreme of all the tillages. Sometimes it takes two passes with a field cultivator to get it back so that you can plant on it. So, you know, my favorite is strip till, but this is the one that I, I get to compete against. The other thing about those little aggregates in the soil is they're your number one defense against soil compaction. And tillage just breaks them up. So the more tillage you do and the deeper you go, the more you break up that structure and the more your equipment's gonna fall. So, um, like if, <laughs> when you till a soil, what's nice, what, and the reason we till, not just so that the plants can suck up soil, is that we do it because it loves, it warms up the soil, right? You put that air into the soil, you put that residue down into the soil so you don't have that mat on top and it warms up great and, you know, especially in our dark soils as you go north. In Iowa, Iowa has good soils too. And I've had to soil sample them as a master's student here. <laughs> wow, four feet. And when you look at it, um, the more that you till up the soil and introduce air, you know, how much weight can air hold? None? <laughs> it, it was an easy question. And it wasn't a trick one. Um, so when you drive on it, it just falls back in on itself. So tillage begets tillage. You have to keep tilling to keep it going. And so when people say, well, I'm a disc ripper and I'm gonna to go to no-till, I'm like, oh, uh, you know, they're, they're gonna have a very difficult time the first few years. So we try to back them off more in stages. And tillage, like I said, destroys the structure. And <laughs> if you don't think structure's important, anytime you dig a soil pit, and I hope Mike goes by the same things, is that you never dig the soil pit bigger than the tractor. Okay, because if you do, <laughs> you can lose the tractor in the spring. If you don't think soil structure is important. Oh, and by the way, just, just to be obnoxious, um, that's a track and a tire. They're both stuck. Okay. <laughs> so tillage erosion, we talk about water erosion and wind erosion, but really tillage is the most erosive thing out there. And it moves soil up and forward with the tractor. And Marla Reichman from MAFRI up in Canada and Manitoba, she did one where they um, dug a pit and put down corn seed, and then they ran over it with a tractor going one way and the other way with different tillage implements. And then you could see where the corn grows, so you can see how far it threw the corn. Oh, that was cool. If you go on Twitter or something, you can find it. It's really interesting to see how far. Now we did soil pits where we dug out the soil, and I don't know why we did this, but we layered back in dark soil, light soil, dark soil, light soil. And then the last top one was sand. And so when we ran like a disc ripper through it and stuff, it was throwing it 12, 15 feet in front of us. And I didn't even realize it moved soil that much too. 
And there are studies that show that, um, since I don't have the time, but there's one from Morris in uh, West Central Minnesota that shows that on highly erodible lands with mobile plow, so you're looking at the worst case scenario, the tillage was moving 27 tons of soil per acre per year downslope. And then the water could get those smaller particles and wash them down too, and it was washing a little less than nine tons. So you were looking at 36 tons of soil was being moved downslope. And that's not what we want. So, well, we don't lose that much to erosion. I don't do mobile plow on highly erodible slopes. I'm not really losing a lot, especially when I have those flat soils. Yeah, there's a little wind erosion, but it really doesn't do that much. Well, that's from Minnesota. I, I, we can get all our pictures from Minnesota. I don't have to go looking at, um, you know, the, what are they called, hubbubs, hubbub, hub, what are they? The big, huge uh, dust storms that go over Phoenix. I don't have to get those. I just, we just go out the door. So if you look at the annual windfall, uh, wind erosion, and this is in 97, that's the earliest, the latest one I can get. Uh, after we had corn go up to seven bucks a, a bushel, I know that area grew. Um, so we're in the Red River Valley. I'm kind of like the little western bump of Minnesota. I kind of work around that area. And the Red River Valley has very high clay content soils and very flat, because that used to be an old lake bed. And it, that's how the um, glaciers drained. They went that way. So when you look at that, you know, do you know how big a soil particle is for clay? Sand, you know, because you can hear it and it scratches and, and you see it in your little play boxes for the kids and grandkids. But clay is microscopic. And it's just, you can't see it with the naked eyes. So how easy is it to move with the wind? It's incredibly easy to move. So when you see that hazy sky, that's your clay. And when you look in the ditch, that's more of your sand and your uh, silt. So we went out and uh, my cohort and I, we went out into six different ditches, uh, varying levels of snow cover. So when I moved to Minnesota, I learned the term snurt. For those of you who live further south, that's snow and dirt. And we would see, we haven't had very good coverage in Minnesota and in the north with snow. Snow is a wonderful blanket over the winter time, so it keeps your soil from moving. And if you ask anybody who snowmobiles, they will tell you, these have not been good years for snowmobiling. And that means we have more soil moving. So we went out and sampled six ditches, and you take a known area, and you take the snow profile, and then you go and let that melt. You take the soil, you have it go in and get it analyzed, and then I sent it to ARS in Brookings, and they helped me calculate it back out to a ditch acre. So this is what collected in the ditch, not what left each acre of the field, surrounding field. We have to make that very clear, because. Newspapers got a hold of that and said, oh, we're losing nine ton an acre. And you're like, no, no, we're not. That's what's collecting in the ditch. So what we found is that you have N, P, and K, and, and we did a full spectrum on it. But it was about $50. And depending on the price of N, P, K, of course, that goes up and down. So we're losing about that per acre that gathered in the ditch. This is the drive that I take to work every day. And so they say, you know, do you have any impact? And I said, I don't think I do, <laughs> telling them to reduce tillage. So the one up above has no residue, about 15%. And so the ditch next to it is, is um, just black. I went a mile down the road. You could see the seam windbreak in the background there. And we had 45% residue, and the ditch was fairly white. 
So when you take those uh, six ditches, it was anywhere from 1.6 tons of soil collected in that ditch up to 33 tons of soil in that ditch. And that averaged about nine tons or 18,000 pounds of soil moved off that neighboring field into the ditch. So, you know, that's our soil. That's, we want it. And now it was also 4.1 in organic matter percent. And Dorian, who works with me in the summertime, he also found out it has soybean cyst nematode that was moving in it too. So, you know, when we're in southern Minnesota, all the fields have SCN. But when you go to northern, they're like, no, no, don't bring that with you. They're already mad at the geese. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for making this podcast series possible. And also welcome in Dr. Ray Acevedo, former assistant professor of precision agriculture at Kansas State University and consultant for TopCon Agriculture. In this week's technology tips from Dr. Ray, he discusses the need for assessing phosphorus and potassium levels through proper sampling techniques. And so if we look at this, what are some of the nutrient management items that we should consider in prioritized order? So if we look at the bottom of the ladder, the first thing we should probably consider is soil pH. And the reason for this is that soil pH is one of the most nutrient limiting factors in the soil. If our soil does not have the appropriate pH levels, it can reduce the availability of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and on the whole, bring down your entire nutrient management program and reduce profitability. There's a substantial amount of research out there done by universities that show simple applications of Lyme keeping that pH at the right zone can greatly improve the profitability on your farm. And once we have our pH taken care of, then we can start to consider our phosphorus and potassium. These non-mobile nutrients in the soil often we take either uh, grid soil sampling or soil sampling by zone or even a composite sample can really help you get you on the right track on what you need, what you have for potassium or phosphorus levels and if you need to make any additional applications in order to ensure your PNK is the right spot for optimizing yield. Well, thank you, Ray, for your insight and to TopCon for supporting this podcast series. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Jody DeYoung-Hughes on the importance of providing a blanket of protection for your soil. So, you know, we're trying to back off wind and water erosion. The other thing with water erosion, our systems aren't that leaky. I mean, when you're looking at a field and you're losing only 1% of your phosphorus, and so you're putting down 100 pounds for two years, you know, I mean, to cover two years, and you get one pound that's leaving, that's not a lot. That's, that's a pretty tight system. The problem is, is that stupid one pound of phosphorus makes 500 pounds of algae. And they have studied that a few times. And yes, it's, oh, it's just food for algae. They love it. And then you get the lake owner saying, well, isn't phosphorus toxic? And it's like, no, it's an essential nutrient. It's just out of whack at the moment. So the water washes away our nutrients and phosphorus clings to soil and it washes our soil away. So if we can keep our soil in the field, a lot of our nutrients would stay there where we paid for them for our crops where we want to use them. So five tons of soil an acre is an acceptable loss by the NRCS. They say, you know, five tons an acre, which is about a dime's width, 
But over the years, that really adds up because we don't build soil. We don't make soil. Okay. They say, oh, you know, an inch in a uh, hundred years. Well, okay, one, that's out of my lifetime. But actually, as you go north and things slow down, it can be four or 500 years before you can get an inch of soil. So don't count on that as replenishing your fields. <laughs> it, it's not, it's not going to help you. So we just want to keep down erosion as much as we can. So this acceptable loss, if you're looking at five tons an acre, over 40 acres is 16 dump truck loads of soil. So I don't know very many farmers that if I showed up with 16 dump trucks for that little section there and say, do you mind if I just take your best soil, just the topsoil, you know, and not pay you, uh, you'd be a little bit torqued. So what is the value of this topsoil? Well, you know, it is hard to find actual numbers, but let's just say you're going to replace it with your garden soil type thing and you had to buy it. So if you lost five tons over, and it's $25 to go pay for a ton of soil out there, and that's $125 an acre, and over 40 acres, that's $5,000 a year that you would have to replace by buying it to put it back out there. And if you own 1,000 acres, that's $12,000. So, you know, in the whole scheme of things, when you're buying equipment and that's $100,000, maybe that's not, but that can really help. Plus, that's your nutrients. So not only are you losing, you're just having to replace the soil, but the nutrients that it took with it as well. So how do you protect against erosion? Those are some blow sands by us. Now we have had guys from the blow sands of uh, Nebraska come up to our soil pits. And our farmers, when I dig a soil pit in the sand in Minnesota, they go, oh, look at all that sand, yeah. And then the, the Nebraska guys come up and go, wow, look at all that clay. <laughs> like, so it's all relative, but we do have some good sands and they do blow. So you wanna build your soil structure. The biggest way, Keep it covered, okay? And it doesn't matter if it's with residue or with cover crops. Um, cover crops help build the soil. Tillage will always break down the soil structure. So you wanna minimize the tillage that you do. And when we're looking at percent residue, the NRCS says, well, about 30%. That's what you want, you wanna keep that. Well, if you actually wanna keep your organic matter content strong and, and or building, you'll want higher than 30% residue but I'm still talking 40-50%, which is still leaving 50% of the soil black. So let's get that soil structure. Let's, how do you do that? Again, tillage will always break it apart. This soil acts as columns, those aggregates act as columns in the soil and help keep up the weight of equipment so that you aren't sinking into your soil. I can almost guarantee you, anytime you see a tractor out there stuck, see how deep it is because it's usually his tillage layer. One of the farmers that we worked with, and, and he tried vertical till for the first time, usually a disc ripper. He says, you know, I, li I like that vertical till. And I said, you do, why is that? And he goes, well, it gives me a floor at two inches because that's all he's tilling, so that's the furthest he sinks. And I was like, okay, it's true. Uh, microbes do form structure. So the more diversity we can get in there, which cover crops enhances tremendously. Rotating crops, manure. Manure is a wonderful food source. It's a buffet for those microbes. So if you ever get a chance to get it out there, get it and then put it under, because you know it stinks. But if you have the microbes, you know they physically hold the soil together. They let off sticky substances that help hold the soil together. They're, they're wonderful. But you can tell in this picture that if you did tillage and you brought a shank through that, you're gonna break up hyphae. 
Now people are like, oh, it's just detrimental to the soil. It's like taking a tractor through a, a kitchen full of people. And it's like, mm. if those people are bacteria, they're like, partay. If they're fungi, they're like, then they're dying. The bacteria actually take off when you do tillage. It's a huge burst. Because when you gave them air, oxygen, remember and Mike was saying you need oxygen, and you gave them food. You, and you opened up the aggregates to expose even more food for them, and they go crazy. Problem is, we don't like that. We don't want them to go crazy. We want like a little party, not a big, huge, big party. And like I said, fungi don't like tillage. But if you build the right soil, they will come. And Kevin Costner, okay, so anybody who's under 30, sorry. <laughs> so yeah, and we're in Iowa, so come on. We gotta have the field of dreams here. So, um, so there's products, the bugs in the jugs, I'm, I'm just not fond of because if you don't have a habitat for them, they're gonna die. If you throw them in the Sahara Desert, they're gonna die. So now if you need to inoculate once and then that's fine, then that means you have a, a habitat. Like, okay, if something gets flooded and so things have died, that's a good place to inoculate. Uh, if you are trying to plant corn after sugar beets or any brassica, canola, that type of thing, then inoculate. You can do some um, mycorrhizae that way. But if you have to use it every year, remember Mike was saying how much was in one ounce of soil, and the figures I've seen is in a cup of soil, you have uh, nine billion microbes. You build a home for them, they will come. They will work for you. So uh, Jerry Hatfield here in Iowa, he used this, and I like this one. This is to show you how important organic matter is. And what's really cool is like if I give a talk on organic matter or microbes or compaction or soil health, they're all interrelated. So anything that you do to help one will help all of these. Water infiltration, all of that. So if you can improve your organic matter, you're improving your structure, you're improving your microbes. I know there's a lot of tests out there for microbes, and they're great if you're really into the small details. But if I come out to your field and your wind is, is blowing your soil away, you have a bigger problem than the microbes in the soil. So let's take care of the big things. It's kind of like somebody looking at um, cobalt, but they're not looking at their MPK first. You know, look at the big things, then you can start going down to the smaller things and really fine tuning it. But if you're just starting, cut the erosion. If we can cut the erosion, your microbes are gonna grow anyway. The other thing about tillage is that it releases carbon or your organic matter. So what's the difference between soil organic carbon and soil organic matter? You hear scientists, they always use the carbon. The reason why is because organic matter is half carbon. So they measure carbon. And so you, know, you lose it as, as carbon dioxide because the microbes eat that carbon. Like we eat hamburger and they respire it off as CO2. Like we respire, if you put a bubble over us, you would see CO2 coming up from us. So that's the same thing with the microbes. And so how many pounds of CO2 are we releasing right now? I, I have no idea. I don't even know what a pound of CO2 looks like. So uh, in Morris at the ARS, they have Mr. Jim, and he's the mobile research gas emissions machine. I think it's machine. And he goes out there, and it's, um, a plexiglass box that they sit down right after you do tillage. They sit it down and it measures how much moisture and how much CO2 is being lost from the soil. And so why we can't see it, this machine can measure it. And what they found is that in 19 days after tillage, one, you're going to get this huge burp. 
because you have CO2 just kind of in there, and as you do tillage, the deeper, the more aggressive you do tillage, the bigger the CO2 release, the initial release. And what they found is that moldboard plow, the MP moldboard plow, lost 3,800 pounds of carbon dioxide as organic matter in just 19 days. Disc harrowing lost 1,600, chisel plow lost 1,500, and no-till, the natural, you know, um, in and out of oxygen into the soil and CO2 is about 765 pounds. So there's a lot of machines out there. And then if you look at strip till, he did other strip till ones. It would be between, it's actually less than chisel plow because you're only tilling a third of the soil. You're tilling as deep as chisel plow in a lot of the systems. But, um, you know, so it'd be between no-till and chisel plow. Now what's interesting about this is that after that wheat crop, the wheat crop only put in 2,800 pounds. So the moldboard plow is taking out you know, 1,000 uh, pounds more of that organic matter than what's being put into your soil bank. So that's why moldboard plow, in Minnesota, in western Minnesota, in the tall grass prairies, we actually had um, 10 to 12% organic matter soils. We are now at three and four. And the moldboard plow was, it was king. That's what did it. So because it's always taking out more than it's putting back in. So over time, again, you lose the organic matter. So you can see if you have moldboard plow, which is the one on the left, the 2.4% organic matter. This is in the top three inches. Then you have the deep tillage, the no-till, and then the grass. Well, you know, not very many of us can make a, a living on grass, well, unless you're in Colorado. But. So... True or false? My soils aren't going to dry up or warm up if I don't do some tillage. You know, that air is really good for the soil. Okay, well, this is some data that we have from four years of research, uh, and um, one of the farmers is here, so you can ask him questions. Raise your hand, Paul. <laughs> He's right there. So he helps us out, um, and we're looking at different tillage systems, and what we find, if you look at this, is that the heat um, how much heat is being lost from this? And we go down 18 inches into the soil. We have a grad student that collects this every week in Minnesota, summer and winter. And <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not a grad student anymore. And uh, no-till was about 42, uh, 42 degrees, so you know, a little cooler. But if you look at strip-till in the berm and chisel plow, they're both ready to plant for corn. And it's going to take a few more days for no-till to get there. And vertical till does about three inches of tillage, and it's at 47 degrees. But if you notice with strip till, what it does is it pushes the residue off the berm, depending on the machine type, but with a shank, it pushes it off into the areas here. So you actually get higher residue between the berms, and it's not as cool as no-till. When you look at the moisture, same thing. The reason why is because the heat comes through the berm and dries and warms up underneath the berm. But there's more water under there, so not only does the berm warm up so that you can get planted and dries out so you can get planted, but it keeps cooler and wetter underneath the residue for later on when you need that moisture. So strip till to me is like the best of both worlds. Well, thank you, Jody, for sharing your perspective and insight on taking a deeper look at strip tilled soil health. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so 
feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptailfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on February 1st for the next episode in our 2019 podcast series. And just an encouragement to check out our brand new 2019 Strip-Till Innovators Program. You can find more information and nomination materials online at striptillfarmer.com. For Jody DeYoung-Hughes, TopCon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening.